This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan, the fitness man. Check it out. Today we're bringing on an amazing story of a blue-collar guy who accomplished the Grand Slam of Sheep in less than three years on a blue-collar budget. It's an incredible story of luck as well as determination and possibly some fate, but it's a unique story. He's also an amazing elk hunter. He's killed over 30 bulls on public land. A lot of them are giants, and he's a real humble blue-collar guy. He's a lineman by day. He's got a great history with competitive target archery and he's hunted literally all over the world and he works a nine to five like blue collar job has a family married kids and he's just very inspirational super humble guy this podcast is brought to you by discipline all that means is that discipline sponsors this podcast because we like delayed gratification we like doing the hard thing taking the high road we don't listen to that little voice that tells us that that's good enough We don't need to go shoot. We don't need to work out. We don't need to eat healthy. We can stay up late. No, we say no to the easy, seductive, low road, and we do the hard things every day through hard work, and we stay accountable to ourselves and our long-term goals, and we stay on track of our short-term goals. We're also sponsored by University of Elk Hunting, Elk 101. Corey Jacobson is here to tell you our special offer for the Elk Shape listeners. Hey Elk Hunters, Corey Jacobson here from Elk101.com. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking about elk hunting every day of the year and working continually to maximize your chances for success this fall. Well, Dan and I have created a special opportunity for you that I feel will absolutely take you to the next level in elk hunting, regardless of your previous experience. Three years ago, I created the University of Elk Hunting online course with one goal in mind, to make you a more successful elk hunter. The UEH online course contains 45 chapters of detailed elk hunting information organized into 17 modules and covering every imaginable elk hunting topic, from planning and scouting to calling tactics and tracking 
and every topic in between, the University of Elkhunning online course is the most comprehensive and complete resource available to elk hunters. And for listeners of the Elk Shape podcast, Dan and I have teamed up to offer you a 20% discount when you sign up. Simply go to elk101.com, click the link to the online course, and use the code ELKSHAPE, all one word, when you check out. You owe it to yourself to invest in the single most lethal weapon that you take to the elk woods each fall. Invest in you. Sign up for the University of Elk Hunting online course and elevate your elk hunting success today. All right, Corey, thanks for that offer, you guys. Check out this episode. It's a good one. If you want to support the podcast, give us a five-star review on all those places. You can check out the YouTube channel. We're on Instagram at ElkShape. We have an ElkShape store online. Buy stuff, workout programs, nutrition programs, and you can always follow along the free workouts on ElkShape.com. The YouTube channel is always pumping out new content, and the Elk Shape Camp is coming up. Be on alert for the second one. We're going to do two in 2019, and if you live anywhere out west, midwest, or east, and you want an Elk Shape Camp coming to your town, find me a place where I can train you, teach nutrition, and we can go shoot our bows under duress, and we'll bring that camp to you guys. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Elk Shape Podcast, episode 55, with me, Dan the Fitness Man, and uh, we're bringing on a guy today that everybody is uh, probably not heard of, but should have, because this guy's uh, quite the well-rounded hunter, knows a ton about elk hunting, that's why we brought him on, but he's a true blue-collar guy. He's a lineman, uh, he does taxidermy, he guides, he does it all, but at the end of the day, he's a blue-collar hunter like ourselves, so... Brian Reed, how are you, man? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Dan. Dude, I'm pumped to have you. So it's been a while. Uh, we met, gosh, I just reached out to you because I killed a deer and wanted you to mount it. And I think I reached out to you then. And then I got to go over to your house a couple times and really kind of talk to you about all things hunting. And I thought I shot a really nice whitetail. And then I brought him over to your house. And you had all these monster <laughs> bucks that you were working on for other people. And I was like, okay, there is a significant difference uh, between a 140-something buck and a 180. But uh, far Yeah, as- I think I, I had some really good ones that year. I think I had a couple 180s, maybe a 200-inch North Idaho buck, which is pretty outstanding for here. Oh, God, yeah, you did. I remember. So what's your uh, what's your story, man? Your alignment for uh, Avista, or are you with a Kootenai? Who are you with? Um, I'm alignment for Kootenai Electric. Okay. And uh, I'm a Alaska sheep and grizzly bear guide, uh, guide desert sheep in Mexico, and a tax service. <laughs> Keep myself really busy. Wow. So how long have you been climbing poles? Oh, since um, my early 20s, so maybe 25 years or so. Okay. What? uh, When are you going to hang up the boots, so to speak, with uh, climbing poles? Oh, I got another 13 years to go or so. Okay, okay. So it'll be a while. Are you a foreman or, I mean, I know my brother-in-law's a lineman. They're badasses. What's your crew look like? What do you guys do on your day-to-day? I'm the service lineman, so I work by myself primarily. Oh, okay. So I do all the uh, service calls, uh, power quality. If somebody's got some trouble with their power, I'll go investigate it. Or they'll just they'll use me on uh, smaller jobs, anything that one guy could go handle himself. It's the kind of work I do. Okay, there you go. So you don't do much hot work? 
Oh, I do. I do. Uh, <laughs> fair, yeah, I do a fair amount of that from time to time. Uh, when work's low for my job, they'll put me with the crew and uh, we'll do some hot work. Or when we have outages, I'll, I'm on call several times a year. And so, uh, you know, I'll run crews in when we have outages and get into a little hot work that way. Have you ever been tempted to be a contract work lineman and just go travel and make bankroll? Uh, I actually did that after the Air Force. I was a lineman in the Air Force, and then I did that for about a year before getting the job that I have now. Okay, so, so you I tried had, it. So I had a little, yeah, I had a little taste of that, and it, it was good. And there's a, a lot of money to be made with the overtime that you have out there. You know, coming right out of the military, I wasn't making much in the military, and uh, came out and uh, joined the electrical union and went right to work, and I was making two or three times the money just immediately. You know, that first couple of months, you could knock the smile off my face. It was awesome. Yeah. But at the, I mean, all things come to an end. I mean, you did it a year. Um, were you from Coeur d'Alene area your whole life or what got you back to Coeur d'Alene or how did that go kind of out of uh-huh. the service? Originally from Southern Idaho. Mm-hmm. Uh, my first time up to Coeur d'Alene was a job interview with Kootenai Electric and um, just thought the, the country is absolutely beautiful and a great company, and they offered me the job. So up north I went. That's it? You yeah. raised the stakes, came up here, and then were you married at the time, or did you meet your wife up here, or how did that work out? No, uh, married at the time. Okay. Okay, so yeah. how long have you been married, man? Oh, um, on the on my second marriage now, eight years. Okay. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. I being married and being a passionate hunter, I find it to be extremely difficult, and I don't believe anyone who says otherwise. And so, uh, <laughs> I always like to get unsolicited marital advice from anyone who's you know been in the game. And so, I just can't believe how busy you are, dude. So, being a lineman is a good enough job. Like that's there's plenty of work to be done and lots of hours. Uh, doing taxidermy as a side hustle, that's cool, but you're really talented. I'm not kidding. You turned my white tail around in like, I don't know, five months. Phenomenal job. And I'd heard uh, you were referred to me from another serious elk hunter. So, And then to to guide, and where do you hunt in between all this yourself? So let's get into your hunting pedigree. <laughs> no, I mean, anymore, it's uh, my own hunting times is – pretty few and far between i like to plan one big hunt a year at least and it'll be some kind of high adventure thing that's kind of what i'm into now it'll be uh, in alaska or other side of the world or someplace like that before i started guiding i was primarily an elk hunter like like most guys they take a week or two off and go to elk camp and try to get a bull with a bow and i did that for years and years and um end up getting 30 bulls with a bow and uh, it just uh, occurred to me that if I kept doing it, that's all I was ever going to do. And I, I just wanted to experience uh, bigger hunts and different things. And so I set the elk hunting aside and started chasing those dreams. Where did you hunt? Let's just go over the last couple of years. Because when I met you, here's a blue collar guy. And it started with one. And then next thing I know, sheep slam. Like the grand slam, and I'm like, dude, you're not a millionaire. How are you doing this? So really excited to hear about how a blue collar guy did all this. So I know it's probably a long story. We'll circle back to the 30 elk, but I got to hear about this. 
Well, it was, uh, you know, I married into the Alaskan guiding. Um, my wife's cousins had a, an outfit. They guided doll sheep in Alaska. And so they invited me up there and I went up and, and guided some sheep, guided five sheep that, that first year, got my guide license in the process and, um, was helping another guy during those five sheep, but, um, just got to develop a passion for these wild sheep and, and, uh, just couldn't wait to get one for myself. And so I put in for, um, Rocky mountain sheep in Idaho and, Two, after two years of applying, I drew and uh, got my rocky sheep. And that first year guiding in Alaska, I guided this uh, Mexican ran, ranch owner, and he had desert sheep on his place. And we made a trade for taxidermy. Uh, if I mounted that doll sheep, I could come down there and hunt a snore mule deer buck. And that went well. And then, you know, I saw the desert sheep down there and it's like, man, I would love to get a desert sheep. And, and so we made a big plan where I mounted all of his taxidermy and he was a big hunter and he got the grand slam. I mounted his entire grand slam plus a bunch of other, uh, life-size animals, uh, mountain goats and brown bear and just a ton of stuff and end up earning a desert sheep from him. And I always wanted to get the grand slam, you know, I think any sheep hunter that they always look at that as this uh, huge uh, life goal and um, I got the the rocky. I was in the process of of earning the desert, and I was talking to a, a good friend of mine about it. And I said, you know, I I guide dolls, and I got my rocky, got a good chance of earning a desert, but a stone. I just don't know how in the world I'll get a stone. And uh, and he gave me a call about uh, a couple months later, and he said. You know, the Washington Wild Sheep Foundation is giving away a stone sheep hunt in Seattle. Uh, pretty good odds of winning. You got to be a lifetime member of the organization. Um, you ought to come out. So I did. I joined uh, the Washington Wild Sheep Foundation, went out there, and out of about 350 lifetime members, I won that stone sheep. Are you kidding uh, me? Yeah, <laughs> which is uh, – an amazing thing, you know, at the time I'd only had the Rocky, but the instant I won that stone sheep, I was like, I just got my grand slam, you know, Yeah. because I knew the other two were in the works. And, uh, and sure enough, in the next 12 months, I got all the remaining three. So it only took me, me? (laughs) it only took me three years to complete my grand slam. And you're not Uh, a millionaire. At least you say don't act like one. Okay. Holy crap, that's crazy. Everyone listening to this, you heard him right. The dude, the dude did it. Uh, are you, did you publish any of this stuff? Uh, no. Okay, uh, cool. Under the radar, my kind of guy. Uh, let's, talk sh- <laughs> let's talk shop, dude. I have deep pockets. I crave the mountains. I want a high adventure hunt. I want a sheep hunt. I want to start out with that stone sheep hunt. What is the general ballpark for a hunt like that just the outfitter has a lot of expenses to get you into these wild spaces and they got to make a living too what's kind of like i'd say the range between an entry level if there is such a thing and kind of a higher end you know stone hunt if you will well stone sheep they're really on the increase in price um when i did it i think the 
the value of the hunt that I did, which was maybe four or five years ago now, it was uh, about 32,000. And I think that same hunt now is 45. Oh, that's a significant bump, man. Like 20 something percent. Wow. Yeah. It's, it's gone up quite a bit. Um, you can find it for cheaper. Uh, occasionally you'll find a cancellation hunt or a special deal, but, um, pretty much you're looking for a stone. You're looking at, uh, 45 plus uh some some places will even be clear up to 60 for a stone but um yeah right right in that general neighborhood are we literally talking that that is how expensive it is or are these are these guys just is there supply and demand like economic thing going on there there? yeah yeah there's definitely a supply and demand because the the same outfitter he can provide uh, in the yukon they have both stones and dolls and the same outfitter can provide a a doll sheep for uh, twenty two, and uh, a stone sheep with the guy is going to cost forty five. So there's definitely a supply and demand there. There's a lot of expenses. Uh, sheep hunting's uh, super expensive with um, the logistics of performing the sheep hunt, and that's where they get their their high base prices. But definitely, supply and demand is a big part of it. Okay. All right. And then for people that are dumb like me because they only know about elk hunting, what is the <clears throat> the differences in sheep up north there with uh, – is it a fanon or something and a doll and a stone? Like what's the different subspecies up there? Well, a fanon, um, people argue about that. But basically a fanon is uh, somewhere between a stone and a doll. It's a – it's a thin horn sheep, and that's what you call a, a doll sheep or a stone. They're the thin horn species. Yeah. So it's a it's a thin horn ram that is uh, has characteristics of both. Basically, uh, if a doll sheep has natural color on it, they're going to call it a uh, fanon. Um, to me, if a if a sheep has got all the color patterns of a stone, then it's a stone, regardless of how light it might be. But um, it's basically the colorations, you know, the, whether you call it a, a stone or a, a fan or not. Some of your uh, BC outfitters will, uh, the, who have very dark stones, they, they might claim that they have the only true stones and anything north of them up in the Yukon, they're all fanons. Uh, yeah. I don't know if I quite quite buy into that but okay that makes a lot more sense so my brain's ticking here so in my mind i think the desert sheep has got the highest price tag am i right yeah you are okay you are. and I, 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 that'll that'll change uh one day you know the stones are really catching up okay and and you can find a desert for a little cheaper um uh, you know, I got there's desert sheep in Sonora on the mainland, and and we run into deals there. His normal price is about seventy thousand if you were to book in advance. But if he has a, a tag that needs to be used right away, then it can be considerably cheaper. Which so, is uh, the situation that we have right now. There's one right now that at quite a discount that he's asked me to try to sell. Well, let me grab my checkbook, bro. Uh, yeah. Dude, if you're trading this dude for a desert tag, 
uh, and you're t- trading them through a lot of taxidermy. I'm trying to figure out how the hell you have time to do a ton of full body mounts. Are you buying the forms? Are you covering all the costs? Are you just covering labor? No, that that was the the beautiful thing about that trade with him is we did a total of about $85,000 worth of work in that trade, but he covered all material costs, which was awesome. So I got my desert sheep for nothing but uh, putting time in, you know, working weekends. And it took me about two years to do that amount of taxidermy work. But after it was all sudden done, you know, I had a desert sheep and not a, a dollar out of my pocket. You are a legend. That is oh, unbelievable. I'm, I'm just so blown away. And then when I think about desert sheep, I always think of that island. Is it, is it Carmen Island or what's that? There's a Carmen Island. There's a Tiburon Island. Tiburon Island. Maybe that's the one you're – yeah. yeah. Have you guided over there at all or been to that country? Uh, yeah, I have. Yeah, I've guided on Tiburon, and, and where I normally guide on the mainland is right across from Tiburon. Wow, that yeah. is awesome. So, dude, you've done some things. You've been some places. I got to know, of your four sheep, which one was the most significant or rewarding? Oh, it's got to be my first one, the Rocky. Getting it in the, the Milford country of the Salmon River in Idaho. That's the toughest country a guy can hunt. It is nasty, nasty, unforgiving country. And to go in there unguided in a place where guys really struggle just to find sheep and bring one out is, is just an incredible accomplishment. Well, one of my good friends, and I mean good childhood friends, drew that tag last year, and he didn't get a sheep. And yeah. he's a fireman, and his name's Tyler. He he put the time in. He scouted a couple. I mean, he had everything. Weather. He stuck it out. He just couldn't find anything <laughs> worth shooting. And it was just a, you know, you have to float across the rivers, and you, the elevation's crazy. Um, did you? Was that right out of Salmon, Idaho, or I guess the North Fork? Did you cut across the North Fork and go over? Is that how you access that area? Uh, it- uh, yeah, I crossed the, the Salmon River and then went up the Middle Fork. Okay. Wow. Uh, and it's that's a common story. You know, there's a lot of guys that don't get rams there. They had a year a couple of years ago. They give out six tags in that unit, and nobody got a ram of all, all six guys. And I did a lot of research before my hunt, and I talked to three different guys that told me the same story where they had over 30 days in the unit before they saw a ram before they even saw one <laughs> and uh and i learned from their mistakes because there's a common trend between what they did and and when they end up where they end up getting a ram um and it took multiple trips uh two or three trips in it took me two trips my best friend hunting partner went in on the first trip with me and about three or four days into it he actually jumped from one ledge to another slipped and he broke his leg so we were we were in the back country with him with a broken leg. It was actually his lower leg around his ankle, and and we thought he just had a sprained ankle. We didn't know that it was uh, cracked in about three or four places. And um, and he actually hobbled all the way out with it like that with his oh, trekking poles. Wow! <laughs> Incredible. So that hunt cut 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 a little bit short. And, um, I had to go back in there and I took this guy, you know, I was desperate for help. And, uh, that's a tough thing to do is to find somebody willing to go in there with you. And, um, uh, my gunsmith's son-in-law happened to be in town and had the time and 
and he was wasn't a hunter but he had a big interest in it and he wanted to go and so i need the help so i was heck yeah come on let's go and and uh he's from california surfer guy and man he was a fish out of water in that back country he was scared to death he didn't know what he's getting into but um but fortunately the uh first day in there i was able to find some rams and get one that's a ballsy move taking somebody who is a surfer not a hunter into formidable backcountry idaho we're talking legitimate backcountry steep and deep remote just <laughs> that was ball- i mean what if this guy just sucks and is a crybaby or just <laughs> i know i was i was definitely worried about all of that but man i did, i had to have the help you know that's a that's a lot of weight getting a sheep out of that country and and he was a younger guy and, and big and strong and uh totally physically capable but mentally he just hadn't developed that mental toughness that you get from doing these kind of hunts and and it, it showed too on that pack out you could you could see he would just stop and he's would uh not think he could go anymore and um never done anything like that in his life so he really struggled on that pack out yeah. and then later on, you know he just he was telling me he was just scared to death in there you know just so far from civilization and you know, you're uh, in those kind of hunts. You kind of teeter between survival and hunting. You know, you got to plan everything right to survive with your water and your food and um, those kinds of things. So, yeah, it was quite an experience for him, I'm sure. Yeah, what a test! And that's, I mean, you phrased that perfectly. It is a fine line between surviving and hunting, and you're not going to thriving in that country is is tough. It just shows you what the sheep go through. That do-it-yourself Idaho backcountry, man, that is definitely, that's a hunt I've definitely thought about doing. I have, um, I've drawn the moose in Idaho, but I haven't drawn the uh, mountain goat or sheep, and I did kill a mountain goat in Utah, so I'm leaning towards that sheep hunt one of these days, but I still have the elk bug pretty bad, so it's tough for me to go anywhere during the rut, but um, we're going to circle back to elk hunting. You're quite an accomplished hunter. I mean, you've You've been there, done that. Have you done any international hunts? Yeah, I have. Uh, I went to Kyrgyzstan a couple of years ago and hunted a Marco Polo and an Ibex. And then uh, Canadian, hunt, Canadian hunting and Mexico hunting. As far as hunting, you've been there, done that. So elk hunting, chasing basically yellow school buses that scream in the mountains. Pretty, you know, it's not the hardest hunting, but it, it can be pretty challenging and it's it's a lot of guys sheep hunt, if you will, that live in the Midwest or the East. That's their dream hunt, you know, and, and it's intimidating to them. And, and they kind of almost mm, flinch a little bit when it's brought up, Hey, you should come out West. They really want to do it, but they're a little bit intimidated. So that's a lot of the audience we try to talk to is that elk hunting learning curve audience. And then there's the guys that maybe haven't killed 30 bulls with a bow. Maybe they've killed one every five years and they haven't, you know, experience consistency. So kind of want to take us through your elk hunting learning curve, if you will. Uh, did you have immediate success? And then how did you evolve as you learned more and more about elk hunting? Uh, I, I did have immediate success. Um, when I first went in the Air Force, I was into archery uh, as a professional archer and um, shooting at the local club, met some guys and they invited me to come to their elk camp with them. And uh, hunted for about a week, and then um, 
was just fortunate to, to call in a raghorn bull and get him. And so I got one the first year of doing it. And, uh, but for the most part, I was self-taught, you know, those, those guys weren't terribly successful. They would get one every couple of years. So it was a pretty big deal for me to get one as a greenhorn in there. But, uh, we got to go back up to your being a professional archer. So there's a lot to be said about being really good with a weapon. It makes hunting a lot more enjoyable. And I don't think I talk about that enough on this elk shape podcast, as far as literally honing and doping your weapon and actually even being coached to the point where you can consistently with your technique shoot because I don't think I've ever killed an elk with a calm heart rate with no wind blowing in a flat shot ever and going out and doing those 3d courses and especially at a competitive level adds the pressure that pucker factor uh, the, the unmarked yardages and the different angles really knowing your equipment um, what how did you get into competitive archery it all started with the boy scouts when I was a teenager and that's where I got my first taste in archery and uh, had a summer job and just went out and bought one. Didn't ask my parents. Just bought one. Came home with it and <laughs> uh, started started shooting in the backyard. And um, and I was I was extremely lucky that uh, my local pro shop owner was D Wild. He he is the at the time was the current world champion archer, right? And and I had no idea. I go in there and I had no mentors. Um, my dad didn't hunt, uh, didn't shoot archery with anybody. So I was in the archery shop quite a bit, getting the bow set up and doing little changes to it here and there. And, and he invited me out to league nights, uh, cause he knew I had a big interest in it. And I came out to, to shoot leagues with him, and, and here's the best in the world right here, teaching me how to do this. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of Carter releases, Oh yeah, but uh, Jerry Carter was also at those league nights. So I had the world's best uh, release maker and the world's best shooter side by side teaching me how to do this, you know? So uh, super blessed, super lucky. And now is uh, Forrest Carter in the, in the mix anywhere in there? No. Um, I don't know if I met him or not at that time. He would have been a lot younger. Right. So, so I'm not, I'm not too sure. But I, pretty quickly, I went to the military, and I hadn't mastered what they had taught me at that point. I'd, I went to my first tournament, the Utah Open, uh, with these guys, and I did well. I I won my class, and I was shooting kind of middle of the pack at league nights, which was a big deal for a kid just starting. So I had some natural talent, but I hadn't mastered what these guys were trying to teach me yet. But I knew what to practice. Right, I knew um, the right way to do it. Whether or not I could do it at that point or not, I knew what it was. And I went in the military and kept shooting. And uh, about a year of practice, and then it really all came together. And then, um, uh, then I was just winning everything. You know, I was winning state championships, setting state records, and uh, pretty quickly became a professional archer. Now, yeah. the guy who owned the shop, his last name's Wild. What was his first name? D. Now he's not. Is is? Go ahead. His his boys are really accomplished shooters. Is that Rio? Rio and Logan. Yeah. Oh my from, gosh! Was, You're name dropping some amazing <laughs> archers. Okay. Yeah. And I shot I shot uh, side by side with these guys. They're about my age, so I shot right, right along with them. And one one really cool story, cool part of it is 
I went in the military and I shot for three or four years and really started doing well. And then I thought I would uh, try for the U.S. team. And so I went to the U.S. team trials in Salt Lake and uh, D. Wild was there. I think Rio was there too. And uh, in the previous weeks working up to that in practice, I tied the world record. So I knew I had it in me to compete with these guys. Uh, I went there and I didn't do that great. Uh, there was a, the first day was an elimination day. There's 300 shooters and they kept a leaderboard of the top 16 shooters. And for the first half of it, I was on the board. So I was going to make the cut for the finals the next day. And then I looked up on the board a little over halfway through it and I'm not on the board. And there's a six way tie for 16th place. So I, not only am I not on there, I got to beat six guys in 16th place too. And, uh, in between rounds, I talked to my brother, he was in the stands watching and he says, man, it looks like you're doing awesome. And I said, yeah, I had a couple of lines I just barely missed and I'm probably not going to make the finals. Uh, here's my binoculars. Watch me shoot the rest of the round, you know? And I wanted to do well because I knew my brother's watching me. So I, I got in there and pound the center and, um, like right towards the end, I looked at the board and I was on the board. I made 14th place and, and finished right about there, 13th, 14th. Made the finals the very next day. Uh, it was a double elimination round. And uh, the guy I drew to shoot against was D. Wild, my mentor. <laughs> so <laughs> me, me and D. Wild are shooting off for the U.S. team. And we're and I'm just hammering and he's hammering. We're doing awesome. He ends up setting an official new world record against me. Oh my and god! I, and I shot one point under the old world record. So it, that was quite a day, quite an experience. You know, he had me sign his target and all of that, and said he never would have done it if I wasn't pushing him. That's incredible. This is uh, <laughs> yeah. this podcast is so far gold, man. You're super fascinating, at least to me. So I think that's awesome. So being an archer, that has a lot of crossover with, obviously, rifles and just the principles of a true surprise release and your technique, all the mechanics, the fundamentals, and knowing what perfect practice looks like, not just going in your backyard and flinging arrows, but having a purpose behind that. If you wanted to give just some basic, lower-level, really solid practice advice what would you say to guys listening right now that you know it is off season but they can be practicing what would you probably focus on give them a little coaching moment if you will oh the the biggest thing is shoot year round shoot shoot year round get involved uh with your local archery clubs go to tournaments uh rub elbows with with guys that do it and do it well and you'll pick up a bunch from them everybody's eager to help the next guy you know so uh just go in with an open mind and get around the people that are having success and, and you'll pick it up. That's cool. Are you a member of the quarter lane Bowman? Do you do any of their indoors? Uh, I haven't for a long time. You know, when I took this job, uh, with Cooney electric, uh, I went from being a pro archer and traveling all over the country to start a new career and, um, no vacation, no time to travel. So I had to pay my dues to, uh, for a few years till my vacation started to build up and then once it did build up uh, i wanted to hunt i just had that drive to hunt and and felt i'd rather spend my time hunting instead of traveling and competing well before we get into elk 
which I'm excited. I know you have some notes, which is cool. Brian called me a couple of days before the podcast and was like, Hey, I'm making notes for our podcast. And I was, I've never had anybody do that, but it speaks to your personality. You're kind of like all or none. You're very intentional. And I love that. So you, we're going to talk about this marriage thing. So you've, you've had two marriages. You're on your second, you hunt like a, you're a hunting fool. What do you think you've learned through, you know, school of hard knocks as far as having a successful marriage, but having that sheep bug, having that hunting bug, how do you, how do you do it, man? What are some good principles that, uh, and I'm listening cause I've been married for 10 years and it's still hard cause I love to go hunting. I got a young family. What have you learned, man? Oh, it's, it's a challenge. It's a, it's super hard. I don't know that I have all the answers, but one thing uh, I think that I've learned from my experiences, uh, you, you got to try and equalize things. And my advice is if you have a big hunt planned, you should probably have a big trip planned with a family also. And, uh, it doesn't have to be a tip for tap, you know, dollar for dollar kind of thing. But if you've got something for yourself on the horizon, have something on the horizon for the family as well. So that, uh, they have something to look forward to as well. That's probably my biggest tip right there. Yeah. And that just starts with being a planner intentional, like we just said of moments ago and, and not just thinking about yourself, but maybe put yourself in their, their shoes and, I think that's great. And there's a lot of time of year where there's not much to hunt if you're kind of a blue collar guy. So there's plenty of time to fill their cup and uh, communicate. We've talked about communicating way ahead as far as what you, what you're thinking, what your plans are. I know that I haven't even drawn any tags yet, but I've already told my wife, Hey, I'm going to probably draw Wyoming again and I'm probably going to draw Arizona. Uh, I'm going to hunt Idaho and I don't know what else the draws are going to, you know, I'm already like telling her ahead of time, like what I'm thinking, you know, for the year. And so, and we have some trips planned this summer already, like a lot of camping trips and stuff like that that she likes to do. And, and, uh, right now I'm swinging a hammer left like crazy, helping her remodel our house. And she loves that, but trying to figure her out has been super important. And, uh, that's good advice, man. I think that being married is is awesome, and it makes you stronger. It makes you a better per- person. <laughs> it's just not. No, it's not. Yeah, you got to definitely plan some trips and, um, you know, always make them feel important. That's that's the main thing, you know. How many kids do you have, Brian? Three. Okay, and what's their ages? Yeah. Uh, 24, 17, and 9. Okay. Which one? Are any of them into hunting like you? Oh, uh, the youngest looks like he's going to be. The other two aren't. Okay. What's that uh, like? Because I can't imagine. Like, my, I'm thinking my son's going to be into hunting, but I'm trying to prepare myself in case he's not. Like, you just kind of go with the flow as a parent, or how do you kind of introduce him and see what sticks to the wall? Yeah, it, you know, you gotta you gotta kind of tread lightly, take it easy with them. You know, every kid's going to be different. Some of them, uh, you, you can't challenge them enough with it. They always want to be on the field doing things. And the others, uh, would rather play video games and want nothing to do with it. So, um, I think you just kind of ease them into it, make it fun. Uh, with, with my boy, the youngest, uh, I take him shooting quite a bit. He has a, a number bow. He has three bows. He has two rifles, and and he likes to shoot, but uh, he doesn't like to shoot bows all that much. But 
he does like to rifle shoot and and my my thoughts are well eventually maybe he'll want to shoot at something you know besides a target so as long as i can keep him having fun doing that there's hope well you killed 30 bulls and you, that's a pretty accomplished feat i'm pretty diehard myself when it comes to elk hunting maybe i'll grow out of it but i don't see in my crystal ball it's not going away anytime soon so with that Take us through some of your notes you've made for guys that want to get better at elk hunting and want to get something out of this podcast and lean on your experience. Well, for elk hunting, I'm pretty much self-taught, you know, the opposite of my my professional archery. Um, It was trial and error. Uh, Maybe I have completely different theories than other guys have, but it's what works for me. I like to divide the rut out to uh, three different parts. You know, you have the pre-rut, the main rut, and then post-rut. After hunting so many years for elk, you know, my favorite is probably the pre-rut, the early season when the the herds have uh, less of a bond. You don't have a, a herd bull all cowed up, and he's a little more callable. Uh, sometimes, sometimes you'll find a big bull that doesn't want anything to do with it yet, but. Uh, that that early time when the bull starts to look around for cows and wants to know what other bulls are in the area, I think that's when he's the most vulnerable. What time are we talking about? Like first week of September? Are we talking the first couple weeks of September? Um, what's been kind of your pre-rut stage, if you will? It, I would say, you know, it's going to vary a little bit on area to area. Uh, but it'll be the, the first week of September is mainly what I think of it. You know, like I said, some bulls won't have anything to want anything to do with it. So maybe into the second week, that same bull is kind of acting pre-rut. You know, I've, I've killed the majority of my biggest bulls in that pre-rut where, uh, they're real vocal. They don't have a, a strong herd bond. And so I hunt them a little bit different. I'll do a lot of cold calling. I'll do a, a, a setup where I'll, I'll set up a good spot and for about a half hour, I'll ramp into some really aggressive calling, trying to call in a quiet bull that first week. And and if I do get an answer uh, and he, he's not coming right in, then I'll, I'll go ahead and chase him down and, and be really aggressive, uh, try and get in close, and which is not what I would do uh, if I know that bull has cows. My theory with cows, uh, in the middle of the rut, I really tread lightly when a, a bull has cows, uh, particularly in the morning, in the morning, it seems like the, uh, a herd is going to go to A to B, you know, they're going from feeding and water to where they're going to bed. And when that mid season, that herd has a strong bond, there's, uh, pretty much nothing you're going to do to change that. You know, if you go aggress- aggressive at them and try and get after them in the morning, you're just going to push them farther to the next bedding area or what have you. Um, probably not going to have a lot of success for that in the morning what i'll do is i'll try and intercept them i'll try and get on that route if i if i know where they're traveling i'll try and intercept them try and coax them in with some cow calls one example of this that i had me and uh, my buddy dan in southern idaho we were on a herd the night before and this bull is just going crazy and uh, we made a plan to come over the other mountain, get closer on him the next morning, next morning. Uh, and we knew their travel routes. So we, we uh, worked really hard to get in there early and intercept him. And in a word, we got on the herd. Uh, and I actually saw the herd bull, but he was he was moving with the cows, and I couldn't coax him into range. I did call in a, a raghorn. And in Idaho, you can shoot two bulls. You can have two tags. And I called in this uh, raghorn bull. 
to 30 yards and my buddy Dan, uh, was about 30 yards from me also. And, uh, and Dan's pointing at the bull and he's telling me to shoot him and I didn't want to shoot him. And he kept pestering me, shoot him, shoot him, you know? And so I went ahead and shot him. And, and so I got that bull and, but we knew where the herd was going. So, uh, we took care of that bull, took some of the meat out, came back in, got the rest of the meat loaded up. And then we went to the herd and worked in pretty close set up early afternoon started calling and that bull jumped up screamed and came right in so the same old bull that didn't want to have anything to do with this in the morning um nice six point called in and i killed him that afternoon so that that's typically how i play a herd is uh it, mornings are really really tough with a herd um so i i prefer to keep tabs on them and then hit them early in the afternoon or late in the afternoon about about four o'clock and uh, i think that bull feels free to to come and investigate you and knowing that his cows aren't really ready to go anywhere yet so he can always go back to his cows they're, they're not going anywhere so he'll come check you out I, I think that's the best time to pull a bird bull from his herd that takes some discipline you know i just can picture myself on a ridge listening to a herd bull push his cows to his bedding area and once they get there, maybe the wind hasn't switched yet and slow playing and waiting all day. That's a lot of discipline. And then getting in tight, how tight it's too tight, how far will a herd bull actually travel when his cows are bedded and what sounds of vocalizations are you making to pester him and get him going? Um, obviously you have to listen and figure out what he likes, but like, can you speak to the discipline it takes to do that as well as how close to get to a bedded herd? Yeah, I have a um, another example of this. I had a, a herd, similar deal. I heard him the night before. The next morning, uh, heard him again, uh, but I couldn't really get him to, to do anything for me. He's moving with his herd. It happened to be a full moon, and it's uh, another tip, too. Is a full moon, they tend to be uh, a little restless right in the middle of the day after they've had a good nap. So, um, this one is across a big drainage and, uh, a long ways away. Um, I don't know if he would, I bet that herd was 1500 yards away from me across this big Canyon. And, uh, I was just hanging out there, uh, having lunch and everything. I didn't, wasn't quite sure if this bull was going to want to play ball later or not, but about noon I started calling again cause I knew it was a full moon. And that bull just screamed back, got up, and then came running to me. And there's this big open hillside. Uh, for 400 yards, there was no trees. And, and he was running down that hill, just kicking up this big dust trail as he was barreling over to my side of the ridge, called him all the way into maybe 15 yards and couldn't get a shot. <laughs> this was in, in North Idaho, so uh, super thick on my side of the hill. And uh, end up not getting him but uh it's a great example of how the same bull um wouldn't leave his cows at one time of the day and then another part of the day had no problem with it yeah so really I, had no problem going <laughs> 1500 yards holy smoke yeah yeah it was an incredible thing to see yeah i was going to ask you on peak rut days and and all the satellites and whatnot, like leading into the middle of September, the heart of the rut, most guys get excited about and spend their vacation on those days. I think this what we're talking about is really important because this is where the majority of guys experience elk hunting. They're hearing the bugles, but they're experiencing the frustrations of these herd bulls not wanting to play ball. 
and these satellites sneaking in on them. You know, if you had to kind of like break down the go-to strategy when you have these herd bulls that are pretty cowed up and you have a few satellites, what vocalizations do you feel work the best? Is it like a crescendo? Is it something you have to start slow and, and build up with emotion? What, what's been your go-to sound? Well, in, in the early season, it'll be a, a start slow, you know, um, real slow. So I'll do just a couple cow calls every few minutes, and then it'll be real gradual buildup to where I'm screaming my head off. Um, big growly challenge type bugles and um to me there's three kind of bugles there's a challenge bugle a tending bugle where a bull's just bugling to his cows and then there's a locating bugle which is a just a high to low type of smooth tone where a bull just wants to know what other elk are around him in the heat of the rut what i would do is um try to uh lean towards a submissive tone yeah, you know, it might be different from what you hear. A lot of other people say, "Oh, you got to be aggressive, got to challenge him, you got to pester that bull to make him turn on you." And uh, I think, in my experience, I've had way more luck um, sounding big and tough until he sounds big and tough, and then I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to let. I'm going to be submissive to him. I'm going to let him think he's intimidated me, and I'm going to try and get him on the cow call as fast as possible. And it, that's another big key. As soon as I hear that bull bugle, I'm throwing Esther's cow calls at him as fast as I can physically answer him. And then I'm going to be quiet for a period of time until he bugles again. As soon as he bugles again, I'm hitting him with those Esther's cow calls again, and then I'm quiet again. So I'm rewarding him for bugling, right? And uh, and then um, the bull, you know, my, my bugles at him, is I'm going to have my bull be submissive to him, my cows be more vocal. He's going to think that uh, these cows are his for the picking. He's intimidated that other bull. He can go over there and collect his cows is kind of the theory behind it. Yeah, so you're just kind of creating this scenario where a potential cow is in heat and there's a lesser stag, a lesser bull who's trying to run the show, and you're also creating a reality for this bull that – uh, it's easy pickings, man. Come, come, kick this bull out and take what is yours. Right, and, right. Um, exactly. but, but you have to build that up. You have to build his confidence. You have to prime his pump. And I think this is solid information. I think that's going to work really well. Uh, let's go back to the pre-rut, the early season. These cold calls that you were talking about. Are you opening up with a locator bugle, or do you kind of typically do some calf cow sounds? and just hope that uh, a bull answers or are you literally anticipating a bull sneaking in on you? Um, I'm totally anticipating a bull sneaking in and I'll be, you know, with any of your calling, it's going to work best when you're, you're in with them, right? You're not on the ridge top. You're not just climbing out of your truck, bugling in a Canyon. You're in with them. You're mid-level on the ridge. You're in deep with them. That's when your calls are going to work the best. So I get in one of those those areas where I'm, I'm in with them. I'm in a uh, area that's open enough I can shoot. You know, you want to be real selective in where you set up. The wind's fairly good for where you think the elk might be. And then I'll start slow, uh, you know, cow-calf calls. And then I'll do uh, like a attending bugle, which uh, attending bugle to me is a, a mid-tone to low versus uh, a high to low would be like a locating bugle 
right? And then the Challenge Bugle will have a lot of rasp in it. It'd be a high, raspy, growly uh, type of bugle. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I'll uh, do some uh, uh, cow calls probably for the first 10 minutes. Uh, it's just going to be cow calls. And it's going to start off real slow, like uh, – just a call or two every few minutes at the most. And then, uh, there might be, uh, some tending bugles, that kind of thing. And then, uh, then I'll work ramp up, uh, 15, 20 minutes into it where I got, even though it's early season, I'm going to create as much excitement as I can. So I'm doing estrus calls. I'm doing big bugles, I'm doing all kinds of, uh, big sounds like that. And then, um, then I'll taper it back down. Right, I'll, I'll start getting soft again and uh, calling more sparingly about the last five minutes. And I do that for you know if a bull came close, I'm um, trying to coax that bull that isn't quite there yet to to sneak on in. Gotcha. Yeah, that early season has to line up with the places that you are hunting. Where have you elk hunted across the west are you are you just exclusively idaho or have you bounced around montana and other places uh, yeah I've, I've hunted idaho uh, wyoming montana washington Ew. the majority the majority yeah yeah the majority of my bulls have come from uh wyoming and idaho yeah okay so yeah. if i'm going to wyoming and they open september 1st um, in your years' experience there, obviously it's a big state. But I feel like they manage their elk really well. They have a great management system. Despite the grizzlies, the wolves, they still. I mean, they nowadays, if you're a non-resident, if you want a general tag, you got to put in. There is no leftovers, um, and that probably wasn't the case with back when you were going. But Wyoming, let's key in on that cowboy state. Like, what was your experience early season in Wyoming? Well, I'm trying. I went there and helped my buddy last year. In the Bighorn Mountains, mm-hmm. I'm trying to remember exactly what time of the year. It was fairly early, I believe, or the the elk were acting like it was early. They weren't uh, really herded up a lot, so it was, in all intents and purposes, it was early season. Yeah, maybe more more mid season, and and uh, and that's the most important thing is how are the elk acting? You know, rather than what calendar day it is. Mm-hmm. So the the elk weren't herded up real strong and and it was kind of neat because it was with my old time hunting partner and we hadn't i hadn't hunted elk for about five years doing all this guiding and the sheep hunting that i did so i got some new calls and i uh started practicing and and uh trying to get my head around elk hunting again and i go out there and kind of similar for him he hadn't been out a whole lot and uh we're kind of like, man, I hope we remember how to do this, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and we go out there and within two hours, we killed a six point bull. <laughs> it was phenomenal. Still and got we got, aw- we got awesome video of it. And, uh, and hopefully we'll turn it into like a full draw film tour video or something like that. It was a, it was a pretty neat hunt. The bighorns, that's some cool country. There's uh there's not grizzlies in that country. If I remember right, and yeah, there's some wilderness, but we're we're either one of you, both of you are non-residents, right? No, he's a resident, so uh, we were we were hunting in the wilderness. You guys could go into the designated wilderness, which is right. such right. a cool thing, and I hate that rule with the passion. But um, I always say on here, if I was rich, I would sue somebody and make that. I try to make that law go away. I think it's total BS, but. Um, 
that Wyoming country is awesome. Idaho is super diverse. I've talked about it before on here, but it's like from tip to tip, it's just two different, three different, four different planets, man. So have you hunted all of Idaho? I have, yeah. I hunt primarily southern Idaho. If I take time off to elk hunt, it'll be in southern Idaho. But uh, there's a lot of elk in north Idaho, and and that's what I hunt when I'm hunting weekends because it's close by to where I live. Yeah, but that southern Idaho country, just pretty amazing elk country. You know, are you up in that mixed timber, sage, big country type part of Idaho? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's open country. There's sage. Uh, it's a mixture. There's, uh, you know, thick forest mountains, uh, sage down low, even sage up high on some of the ridges. Oh, yeah. So, some aspens. Uh, it's it's a beautiful place. I love hunting down there. You know, it's a, it's a way funner area to hunt just because you don't have the North Idaho steepness and the brush you're fighting. And, um, and the bulls uh, are different. You know, they... They're, they're in the same as far as they, they come in. They typically hang up. Most every bull that comes in is going to hang up downwind. Um, that, and that's another strategy we could talk about, too. Most of my 30 bulls uh, were killed solo. I only had, I think, three three of the 30 were called in for me. So I have a lot of solo tactics. But um, when a, uh, in North Idaho, when a bull comes in and hangs up, he could do it at 10 yards, 15 yards because it's so thick. But in southern Idaho, it's going to be 80 yards or more, you know. So, and they, they tend to be a little bit more vocal in north Idaho. I think that has to do with the thickness. Uh, I think the wolves are definitely ha- hampering that, though. They tend to be a lot less vocal when the wolves are in their area. Oh, yeah. Yep. I think uh, we've talked about that a lot here. And, and north Idaho is awesome. But, man, is it it's some nasty country. You call bulls into 15 yards, apparently from 1500 yards away and not get a shot. And that's just kind of part of the program. Those Southern Idaho bulls hanging out at 80 and you being a solo elk hunter. And I don't know my, my exact number, but I'm not at 30 bulls. I'm a couple bulls shy of 30. And I bet I've only killed one where somebody called it in and the rest have been solo. So I I love solo elk hunting, Brian. I really do. Like I actually preach it because of well, for a lot of reasons that you already know, but just a couple is I like to make my own decisions and I like to make fast decisions and I don't want to listen to anyone else's theory or input. I just feel like I'm much more efficient. Now, when you kill a bull, you wish you had people with you, but that's another story. So let's talk about your 27-ish solo elk kills and those strategies because i i think solo elk hunting is awesome and i want to go down that rabbit hole yeah that's it that's how we operated in our elk camp too we'd have three or four guys in our elk camp normally and we'd all hunt solo you know i really preached that and uh, taught the guys the way i did it and we'd all go separate uh, and then as soon as somebody got something, then we'd all team up. We'd go in the next day, pack it out. And from that point on, that guy that got that bull, he's going to be a caller for somebody else. But uh, right from the get-go, we're all solo hunters. And, uh, you know, like you said, you you don't have to answer anybody else. You can be as aggressive as you want. You can be as patient as you want. You can sit in one spot for four hours, or you can run three ridges in a row in half an hour. You know, you can do... You can you have that flexibility to do whatever you want, and nobody's 
uh, second guessing why you're standing in one spot for four hours, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and it's, it's really a, an enjoyable thing to do when you're closing the distance on a bull. Uh, it is harder. It's, it is harder to call in and kill a bull by yourself and to combat that, the technique I developed, um, to combat that is I'd always move from the last point that I called from. So basically it'd be like, I'm calling one in for myself. I, I would do my calling as soon as that bull gets, uh, um, it all depends on how open it is, but maybe 150 yards away, he's committed. I know he's coming. He's getting closer. I'm going to move uh, about 80 yards, 60, 80 yards downwind and closer to him because that, that's where he's going to hang up. You know, uh, 90% of bulls are going to come in uh, slightly downwind where they want to try and see you first, right? And so uh, it's a very predictable thing. So you know, you pretty much know where that's going to happen. You, you know which way the wind's going. You know where he's at. You know you can predict almost exactly where that's going to happen. And so that I'll move to that point. I'll call, do my calling, and then I'll move to that point, and then I'll wait and not call anymore at all until it sounds like he's not coming anymore. And then <clears throat> then I'll repeat the process over and over. Yeah, that, I've talked about that. And it's you know, one thing I say is it's all about the terrain features and you kind of, if you're in unfamiliar country, you kind of have to just give it your best estimation as to what's the country going to look like and how's the bull going to travel. Everyone talks about how the elks can smell, but I'm with you. I feel like these elk, yeah, they want to smell you, but they really, really want to see you. They want a visual and, uh, you have to kind of play the terrain to where are they going to try to get their peak at you to size you up visually and you know you got to be able to move those 60 to 80 yards after that last sound efficiently fast and quiet um because if you break if you break brush they're going to catch that they're going to hear that they're going to think that you're the bull trying to sneak in on them you, you don't have that surprise factor another thing to think about is as far as once you finally get that bull and you know he's coming and maybe you didn't get to where you needed to be and he is sort of, as you said, hung up, then what? Like, what's your next go-to to try to turn the tables once again? Well, if he's, if he's too close to uh, do your calling and move again, you know, you're in country, you know he'll, he'll hear you, um, you just don't have the freedom to move, then I'll revert to some really, really soft cow calls. Um, just barely loud enough for to where you can hear it, and uh, now I've, I've closed the, closed the deal a number of times doing that. But that's uh, that's kind of a last resort, you know. Yeah. If you're, you're pin, pin down, you don't have a shot, you can't move. Some really quiet cow calls can make the difference. Elk make all sorts of sounds, and it's not even a bad idea to even. If you can get into something thick and like rake a tree a little bit, maybe the bull's under 30 yards or so, maybe you're, it's just you can't see him. Just do something instead of hoping that he's going to like change his mind all of a sudden and close the deal. And then when it, that's the, that's the biggest thing right there is do something. Don't, don't wait for it to happen perfectly for you because it's probably not going to. You're going to have to, do something. You're going to have to get around that tree, get in front of the bush. You're going to have to make something out of nothing. Sitting and waiting is probably not going to work out in your favor. I mean, it, you know, all depends on the situation. You know, so, you know, I, like I say, I've 
sat in one spot for four hours and end up getting a shot at a bull because I knew the herd was right below me, a hundred yards below me. They were working up and going to bed and, and everything. But, uh, but for the most part, you, you got to be proactive and, and think on your feet and don't be afraid to, to make a situation happen for you. No doubt. No doubt. So Brian, got to ask you like, what's some of the, what's the best bull you've pulled out of Idaho? And obviously what's the best bull that you didn't get? Like, do you have a specific bull you hunted for several years and just never yeah. could close the deal? Um, oh yeah. I got all kinds of stories <laughs> like <laughs> that. Uh, the best one I brought home was a, a 360s bull from southern Idaho. Wow. And uh, several in the 330s. The best one that I didn't get, I have two really big bulls that, that haunt me, you know. Yes. Like like everybody, those with those close calls, the ones you, you don't bring home, uh, man, they just haunt you uh, for years. But um, there's a bull that we hunted for years down southern Idaho. And, man, I, I, was, I was obsessed with this bull. He was huge, and and for three years in a row, I was in bow range of him multiple times each year. And one year, the second year, I was in bow range of him 15 times and didn't get a shot. So it was uh, – and the next year, we didn't even know for sure if he was around. We hunted for him for a while, couldn't find him. Um, another buddy of mine went to that spot and he heard him, he had a distinct bugle and then, um, then went back, saw him. And then I went back and, uh, and it was in the morning and he was working up the ridge with his cows. And so I'm just, uh, slipping in as close as I can get to him. I'm not really trying to call him in. I'm just trying to get in on the herd. And, uh, he was really screaming his head off of his cows. The cows weren't moving fast enough for him. And, and he was out ahead of the cows. When I first saw the herd, he was about 80 yards ahead of the cows. And he's raking a tree and he's looking back, back at his cows, just screaming at him, trying to encourage him to hurry up and catch up with him. And I was able to sleep, slip in between him and his cows when he's come back through. I got a shot at him, uh, but he's, he's come back through fairly quickly and I didn't take the time to range find it. It was about a 40 yard shot. And, uh, I had my range fires up as he's coming in, but then I had a small window and I had the thought, Oh, he's close enough. Get him shot. Just get him shot. And so I lowered uh, my range fire drew back. And as soon as he hit that opening, I called, he stopped, I shot, hit him. And then, um, he, catches up to the cows down the ridge he goes and, and uh and i ran over to the ridge and i actually saw him about 100 yards uh down the hill in the opening walked through an opening but um but anyway I, I never found that bull i looked for him uh for days and uh not a very good blood trail couldn't find him and then the, the following year uh, me and my buddy were out in the woods and we split up and and uh met up later in the evening and and uh, he told me he ran into a guy up there in the woods and that guy told him he found that bull and it scored 396 oh yeah about a 400 class bull so you're not kidding that's like that's just unheard of man yeah so i have a I have a crappy story. I wasn't going to share this, but you brought it up. So I, in 2017, I, I, I worked this herd bull 
and I never made a sound. I just, I stayed on top of this ridge and I didn't dive after him. I kind of had an idea where he was going to, a saddle, he was going to cross and move his herd. So I literally just hauled ass two miles down the top of this ridge, past the bull, and just kind of was going off my experience. And, and anyways, by the time I got down there and got set up, his cows were already going by me and I could hear him bugling. So me hauling ass two miles on top of, of a ridge barely kept up with a herd bull fighting brush going down side hill in a mountain. But I got around, got in front of him, cows go by, he cruises up, comes right in my lane. And I cow called and stopped him at 40, shot him at 40. He was quartering two, which I absolutely hate that shot. Got a good look at him. I had my head camera on. I think I was wearing a, a contour action camera. So it, it looks further than it really is, you know. But 40-yard shot, I felt like I made a good shot. Went over there, found good blood right away. And I think I sat down and listened to a full or a meat-eater podcast. It was like a hour and a half podcast i listened to the whole thing just trying to give him time and long story short is i found his pretty good blood trail and then i found his last blood on just before the the ridge dropped off and it was a pretty good pie plate of just lung blood and then he sealed up and so i got my gps out and i gritted and gritted and gritted and came back the next day and gritted and came back the next day looking for birds i knew this was gonna be my best bowl and Anyways, that year I, I kind of just you know gave up on it after I think three days, never could find him. And um, long story short is this guy was telling me about this giant bull hanging in a local sporting goods store in Idaho. And they said that some hunter found it in the bottom of this canyon and the guy named the canyon. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And then it took me a while and I was like, I was like wait a second. That's, uh, that's, where I kill, that's where I hit that bull. I wonder if that's, that's him. Anyways, I got a hold of the guy, the guy that found it. He was another hunter. He found it the next year, and he found it by stepping on it in some thick stuff. And I think he said that uh, he was elk hunting at the time, and a couple bulls were bugling, and so he just marked it on his GPS and then chased after those bugles. Didn't get them, came back, and he packed the whole, all the horns out. Like it was still in there, and he said he found an arrow laying in the rib cage, and he brought the arrow out. And uh, so I got a hold of this guy because it's a small town. I figured out who he was, and I sent him a pictures of everything, my GPS screenshot, that my arrow, because I was using a pretty uh, unique arrow that I had built myself. And we had a he called me, and we, we talked, and he was like, yeah, man, this is definitely your bull. It's hanging at the store if you want to go look at it. And, of course, I'm like, well, do you, can I have it? And he, and he said no. Uh, he wants it hanging in that store. So – I was super oh, down, good. but uh, it's a it's a it's a three sixty bull for North Idaho, and oh, uh, awesome. would be my best bull. And so I even offered to get this guy. I'm not going to give him money, but I offered to give him a brand new bow for his time, and he declined. So I'm walking away from it. But man, it's just it kind of haunts you a little bit um, when you do end up killing him, but you don't get to recover him. Uh, did you get those horns back, or did that guy keep them as well? No. No, that's the thing is uh, uh, my buddy didn't get his name or any way to get a hold of him or anything. So oh. <laughs> I had no way to contact the guy about it. Well, he probably would have hung him in a local oh. 
sporting goods store and told you not to, to told you to pound it. Right, yeah, I'm sure he would. Yeah, I'm sure he wouldn't have given them to me. Yeah, well, it happens to all of us. That's why I share that story. But it's you know that's why we keep hunting. And uh, man, Brian, it's been good having you on. I got to tell you, um, my podcast. I try to find these diamond in the roughs that no one's heard of. They're not insta famous. And I got to tell you, man, you fit the bill. You are a legend. And uh, maybe someday I'll have you guide me on a Arctic grizzly hunt. I know that's kind of the one. Like I don't have the sheep bug. But I love hunting bears, and I really want to kill a grizzly, and uh, that oh, would be you'd epic. Love that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a great time. You're in the brooks up there. Yeah, in the the western southwestern brooks for the grizzly bears, and I guide doll sheep in the Alaska range. Okay, yeah, don't have the sheep bug yet, thank God. But uh, you're a living legend, a guy who's gotten basically the slam done in four in three years without really having to to cough up a you know obviously to spend the kind of money it would take you start adding up the numbers to go retail and uh that's a whole nother level oh, man. Yeah. yeah it's daunting it's uh you add up the dollar signs and it's something that most guys would be like i'm not even no way i can even try that you know but it, it's doable you know if a guy has his heart set on it you know there's there's ways to do it where do you go from here now that you got to are you going to get back into elk hunting are you going to go more international what what's your uh What's your next move for hunting? Well, the next thing I want to get is the the Big Ten. I'd like to get an archery Big Ten, which is one of every major species, you know, one bear, one deer, one elk, um, cougar, uh, mountain goat, moose, you know, one caribou. It's not not all the different subspecies, just one of each. So I got my sights set on that. I need a mountain goat to complete it with a rifle, but I'd have to get another moose and another caribou with a bow. So got my eye on that right now and and i i see myself getting back to elk hunting for sure you should you're a killer and maybe uh we'll have to talk afterwards but we'll have to compare notes but thanks for coming on man and i appreciate your your time on a saturday and i'm glad you didn't get get called into work this time and uh <laughs> we got to finally do this man so thank you for your time you bet thanks for having me all right don't hang up we're gonna call this an episode guys and we'll catch you on the next one